This is Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. On the phone, we have a gentleman who coached not only in the NFL, but also in college and also in the USFL for the Chicago Blitz. It's Hall of Fame coach Marv Levy. How are you doing, Mr. Levy? I'm doing great, and it's good to be with you and all the good fans here. <laughs> I think we left out the Canadian Football League. As part well, of that's family. true. I was five years in uh, Canada with the Montreal Alouettes. That sounds a little familiar with the current Bears coach, I think. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> hopefully, you could be as hopefully you could be as successful as you were with the uh, NFL coaching. <laughs> well, I, I know him, and his reputation among coaches is uh, superb. So. Uh, uh, I have high hopes for the Bears. I grew up in Chicago as a Bears fan, and uh, it's sort of been rekindled when they hired Mark. So you weren't a Cardinal fan growing up in Chicago? <laughs> they don't date me that much. I, yeah, I remember the Cardinals. No, I was a Bears. <laughs> I was a Bears fan back then, and uh, so uh, I've become that again now that I've moved back. I thought everybody on the south side favored the Cardinals, and the north side were more Bear fans back then. No, actually, back in the 1930s, if anybody can remember that far back, uh, on the south side, there were a lot of Bears fans and, and honestly, more in baseball, more Cubs fans than White Sox back then on the south side. Interesting. Now, how does a guy go from South Shore High School to Coe College? How, how did you find Coe College or how did Coe College find you? Well, that is a little bit of a story. Actually, uh, when I graduated high school, it was the midst of World War II, and along with 21 of my classmates, we all enlisted in the Army Air Corps. Three years later, uh, when the war was over and we returned home, I was recruited to play football at the University of Wyoming. And I did. I went out to Wyoming, but, uh, and, uh, but at that time, they didn't give you a minute for study. I wanted to combine. I thought student athlete meant the term. There wasn't a free moment, and I was feeling badly about it. I had a high school teammate, a fellow named Dudley Simpson, a highly decorated Marine during World War II, who was at Co. At that point, I had never heard of it. Dudley said, Marv, come here. You can participate in sports and get a great education. I did it, and he was right. Then how did you end up at Harvard? Well, <laughs> um, I entered undergraduate school with the idea of uh, going to law school. And um, I, I, I got good grades. I was, I was a very dedicated student. It was important to me. And I enrolled in Harvard Law School. But when I left, my college football coach at Code, Dick Clawson, called me aside and said, Marv, if, if you ever want to coach, you've got a job here. And um, honestly, I, I entered law school. I was about three weeks into it, and my heart was out on the athletic fields. They allowed me to transfer to the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, which I did and got a master's. And then um, uh, I went to a, to a prep school in St. Louis for a couple of years as a teacher and coach. And then an opening occurred at Coe, and Dick Lawson hired me, and I was back there coaching football. I haven't regretted the change a moment. Now, you, you mentioned... Uh Country day in Saint, in suburban St. Louis. How, how did you how'd you end up there? Well, uh, as I say, I was in graduate school at uh, uh, Harvard University, and the headmaster, a man named Robert Cunningham, I still remember him and revere him as a great educator, came through. He was looking for. Uh, 
uh, a teacher of English and history. He liked my credentials. Called me in. I said, Mr. Cunningham, I'd, I'd love to teach it, but I also want to be a coach. And uh, he said, you can be the head basketball coach and assistant football coach. And I said, I'll take the job. Uh, my wife-to-be asked me how much they're going to pay me. I said, I never asked him that. <laughs> so, then- so I took the job at Country Day, and uh, as I say, I was there for a couple of years before going back to Cole. Then you were at the University of New Mexico for a while. Well... We had very successful seasons at Go. Uh, actually, Dick Lawson was picked as the uh, uh, Division Three College of the Year. I think two years in a row we were undefeated. He went out to New Mexico as head coach, and I went along as a member of his staff. Two years later, Dick left to become the athletic director at the University of Arizona, and they promoted me to the head coaching position. At that time, by the way, I was the youngest major college head coach in the country. Uh, 40-some years later, I was tied with George Hallett for the oldest in the history of the NFL. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, don't don't question my durability. You can question some of my coaching decisions, but my durability is there. <laughs> Second to none. And, and you didn't have to own the team to last that long either. No, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Very good point. What What made you want to get into coaching? Oh, I loved it. I loved the game. I loved the competition. I liked the camaraderie. Uh, I liked the excitement. Uh, I've said this many times. As a coach, you put in long, long hours. Certainly we did, seven days a week during the season for seven months. But I never worked a day in my life. It was pure joy, and uh, and, uh, it just appealed to me. My father had been an outstanding athlete, too, way back. I think he was the outstanding prep basketball player in the city of Chicago back in 1915 and 16. And he uh, encouraged me so far as sports are concerned, too. Did you ever, did you dream of coaching in the uh, NFL, or did you basically think to yourself, you know what, I just want to stick it out in college? No, I, I tell you, that, that is an excellent question, and I will expand on why I say that. After I coached in the NFL, was coaching in the NFL, I should say, I'd often get letters from young guys who were going into the field. They said, uh, Coach Levy, could you tell me, how will I become a coach in the NFL? And my answer, my response to them was, young man, if that's the only way you're going to be happy, you don't want to be a coach. Uh, the odds are long that you'll be fortunate enough to move there. Do the greatest job you can. I've known some coaches who coach for 45 years at one high school and, uh, and just adored it, loved it, or are renowned for the job they did. It should be the love of coaching, not just that I'm going to be coaching in the NFL. That won't occur in, in, many, in many cases. You won a couple of championships in basketball. Were you a better basketball coach than a football coach? Uh, <laughs> no, I actually at, uh, at, at Co, um, I, I went in as assistant basketball and assistant football and then, um, the head basketball one, one coach one year, just before the, uh, school year began, was offered a huge promotion going to Creighton. He left and I became the head basketball coach. And we did. We won the, uh, we won the, uh, championship, uh, of our conference. I went, we went on to the NAIA tournament. We didn't win it at all. But, um, 
So um, I, I think what we had was was good players, and I hope I contributed to that as well. But um, I, I, I loved all sports. I was also the head track coach at Co for a while, um, and um, uh, but uh, football was my true desire to coach. And you knew something about talent, not only on the playing field as coaches, because you uh, hired Bill Walsh when you were at Cal. Yeah, I tell you, I'm going to do some bragging now. Uh, when I was after New Mexico, we had a couple of very good seasons there, and I uh, was uh, called to the University of California, took over the head coaching job there at a time when there was uh, tremendous student unrest. There was no affirmative action program. Uh, we had to struggle. And I hired a coach out of high school. You named him Bill Walsh. I hired a guy that was an intern at Cal at the time, a guy named um, Mike White, who later went on to coach in the pros at the University of Illinois. Um, I hired Bobby Ross, who went into the pros. Uh, I'm, I'm bragging now because there's some pretty darn good coaches. Uh, Dick Stanfell, who later became a tremendous coach, the line coach for the World Champion Chicago Bears, was a member of my staff at Cal. And I was one step away from hiring Dick Vermeil out of high school when uh, we all got fired because we couldn't win in the circumstances that were there at Cal. So were you an excellent judge of personnel, or is is there a certain amount of luck involved, or, or how does that work? Uh, yeah. in, in, in terms <laughs> of hiring. You want me to do some bragging now, is that it? Uh, no, um, no, I, I, I'm proud that I was able to identify those men. Uh, I've had some other tremendous assistant coaches during the years uh, that I worked. I worked with some great coaches. Uh, I remember telling uh, Ralph Wilson when um, uh, he was interviewing me for the, Ralph Wilson, the owner of the Buffalo Bills, when he was interviewing me for the Bills job, and he asked about coaching, I said, Mr. Wilson, this isn't just a good coach that you need. You need a good coaching staff and uh, that's so important and there are times where the head coach doesn't know as much in certain areas of the game as some of his assistants um, and um, so um, yeah there's some coaches I hired uh, uh, that, that maybe uh, were mistakes but not many not many very few but there's one or two uh, over the years that I could look back on and say no this guy wasn't really what I had in mind but for the most part I was so fortunate to work with some of the, the greats. Aren't you afraid, though, having assistants who have aspirations to be a head coach that, that might be after your job, or you just have to trust that you're going to get the job done and you have to have faith that they're not going to stab you in the back? No, I never felt that. I, I never had anybody I felt was doing that on on my coaching staff. We uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I was fortunate enough to work for the man, I think, wasn't just the best general manager in the National Football League. I think he was the best general manager ever, and that was Bill Pullian. And Bill and I worked together so cooperatively, even though we both may have had strong opinions, sometimes even disagree, but but never uh, in in uh, in mean terms. Um, uh, but we did, we selected only people of high character for our team and for our coaching staff. And I didn't want to mix up high character with personalities. Some might be very extroverted. Some might be more more self-contained. You know, look at the difference in personalities between a Vince Lombardi and a Tom Landry, both great coaches, between a Bill Cower and a Tony Dungy, a guy who experienced great success. Um, but, uh, no, I, I, I 
didn't never felt I was being stabbed in the back, so to speak, by any of the coaches. I, I was blessed with a very loyal staff. Maybe there was one who I fired and uh, I felt was uh, detrimental to what we were trying to achieve, but that was all. Was the transition from the college game to going to the uh, Philadelphia Eagles in 69 and, and being an assistant, was that a, a simple transition? Well, um, I had I coached at William & Mary for five years, and they were five very memorable years for me. The, the guys down there were some of the greatest overachievers you can imagine. Fantastic students uh, and, and very dedicated. I still remain close close to them. Um, but the move to pros, it's different. Sure, it's different. I, I anticipated it would be different. You have to make the adjustments. If you don't change with the times, the times are going to change you, I heard George Allen once say, and he was so right. Uh, so, um, yeah, you have to change, but it's something you anticipate, and you have to learn to make that adjustment. I was fortunate to join a good coaching staff uh, there, headed by Jerry Williams, and then one year later, uh, I was with George Allen out in L.A. because he offered me back then a massive raise of $1,500. <laughs> <laughs> and your wife didn't know how to spend it fast enough, right? I beg your pardon. I, I would say, and your wife didn't know how to spend that raise fast enough. Oh, yes, she did. She certainly did. <laughs> when you joined the Rams, they were an aging team, but, I mean, you had some talent on that team. Uh, at the rally, I mean, Deacon Jones, Merlin Olson, to name a couple, uh, Roman Gabriel at quarterback, yeah. And uh, we had a very good season, but George <clears throat> Allen and the owner did not get along at all, and so he got fired at the end of that first season. But our whole staff went with him to uh, the Washington Redskins the next year, and um, we, we had some a couple of very good seasons. Uh, the second one, we did go to the Super Bowl, played the undefeated Dolphins, came close, but not close enough, 14-7. to And um, so that, that was a great experience. It was a wonderful experience for me uh, to work for George Allen and with the coaches on his staff, guys like Ted Marchabrota, Tom Catlin, Boyd Dollar, like Laverne Torgerson, I could go on, you Mike would, McCormick. You would have won that game if Garo your premier would have kicked a couple more field goals. Yeah, he needed to throw more passes. <laughs> you remember well, yeah. <laughs> Actually, that year, that year we had blocked eleven kicks. I say that proudly because I was a special teams coach. And going into the um, uh, fourth quarter, but about five minutes to go, uh, the, the Dolphins were beating us fourteen to nothing. They were trying a field goal. We blocked it, returned it for a. T- uh, Garrow picked it up and tried to throw a pass, and we intercepted it for a touchdown. It's now fourteen to seven, but uh, that's the way it ended. Yeah, Mike Bass make that interception. Does that sound right? Well, it wasn't an interception. Yeah, an interception of the, uh, the the kick was blocked first. Right. I can't remember the guy who blocked it. I, it might have been Ted Vactor. Uh, it was blocked. Gary Premium picked it up and he saw one of his teammates open in the end zone. But he, when he let the pass go, it sort of semi-slipped out of his hands. And Mike Bass picked it up and went like 75 yards yeah. uh, for a touchdown. And we were back in the game. <laughs> That doesn't seem that long ago to me. Does it seem that long ago to you? No, not really. Heck, it was only 41 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm saying. It's like yesterday. 
<laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, 1972 season. Actually, 1973 that the game was played, but you're right, 40 years ago. See, no wonder it isn't that long. Then how did you end up in Canada? Why didn't you stay in the NFL? Well, I was an assistant there, and um, I was offered uh, the head job uh, in the it, it with the Montreal Alouettes, and uh, coaching head football in the pros sounded very interesting to me. It wasn't an easy decision, but um, I decided that I would I would take that opportunity. I had seen other coaches come out of Canada after great success and uh, succeed in the NFL. Uh, for instance, uh, Bud Grant. And uh, but that wasn't the reason I went that I'd go there. I went because it was an opportunity to be a head coach again on the pro level, and uh, away I went. Uh, other than being able to know how to count to twelve instead of eleven, how difficult is the transition to the Canadian game? Well, certainly it is different. The strategies are different. I was very careful in selecting my staff, the men who had experience in the CFL. It was very important. I got several of them. Uh, you study the game, but when it comes down to it, fellas, the same things, the exact same things that win in the NFL win in Canada. If you run, throw, block, tackle, catch, kick, better than your opponent, you're going to win. Fundamentals of the game uh, were very much the same. Sure, there are rules. I often joke that J.I. Albrecht, the general manager, when he interviewed me, said, Marvin, you come up here, you can use 12 men on offense. I said, wow, that sounds great. When I got there, I walked into his office one day after our first game and said, you didn't tell me the other team's good too, J.I. <laughs> <laughs> but it helped, yeah. though. I mean, you got Johnny, Johnny Rogers as your running back, an all-purpose guy. Our owner was a man named Sam Berger, a wonderful, renowned gentleman, a lawyer. He had uh, he had been the uh, uh, general in the Canadian Army during World War II. Um, uh, just a wonderful man, and he went out and he paid the biggest contract ever. Johnny Rogers, Heisman Trophy winner, was bringing him to Canada, and uh, Johnny was a, a fantastically talented athlete, but he had a lot of personal problems that finally made us let him go after a couple of years. He resolved those problems. I understand he's now back at the University of Nebraska uh, as an advisor to the students there and is very well thought of there. So I'm so pleased to hear that the pendulum did swing back in the right direction for Johnny. When the NFL came calling with the Kansas City Chiefs, ha. You know, were you packed at the moment they came and knocked on your door? Could you repeat it, please? Yeah. I, I... When, when the NFL came calling with the yeah. the Kansas City Chiefs and they say, hey, Marv, we'd like you, did, did it take you a nanosecond to make that decision or, or was it more more difficult? No, uh, actually, we had, uh, when I went to Canada, good things had happened up there. We went to the, the five years I was there, we went to the Grey Cup three times. We won it twice. My, the final year there, we had a 41 to 6 victory in the front of the biggest crowd in the history of the uh, CFL at that time in, in Montreal Olympic Stadium. And uh, the things were going very well. And uh, I, I had three NFL teams approach me uh, about it uh, 
Uh, one of them I felt was was uh, uh, the team was getting very old, and uh, they'd been near the top for a while, but they looked like they were about to descend. Uh, and I, I just when the Chief, when the Chiefs also approached, even though they had had some tough times, I th- thought they had a chance to ascend and get better. No, uh, there wasn't much doubt in my mind that I wanted to take a head job in the NFL if offered and. Uh, it came, and that's when I made that move. What was it like in Kansas City for those couple seasons? Well, I came in. They had just had two or three in a row, two and fourteen seasons. And I came in. It was going to be a little bit uphill. Uh, the first year, uh, we we really improved. We doubled our wins. We went four and <laughs> we won four games. Uh, they had been two and fourteen the year before. And now we're four and twelve. But we kept improving a little bit incrementally. We won four that year. Then I think six. Then six the next. Seven the next. Then nine. Nine and seven. And then a strike year hit. And things didn't go well for us, and uh, it was my demise. I got fired, but I have to say this. A couple of years later, Lamar Hunt, a man, the owner of the Chiefs, who I have great regard for, uh, told me, he said, Mar, I think we made a mistake in letting you go. I've just told that very same thing to Mr. Wilson with the Buffalo Bills, and uh, in the interview that followed with the Bills, I was hired there. Because you, you were out of coaching for a couple of years, and then you uh, were with the Chicago Blitz of the USFL. Yes, uh, that's right. I, after the 82 season, I was let go, uh, and uh, I did a lot of broadcasting television work in 83, uh, hired by the Chicago Blitz in the uh, USFL in 84. Great to come back to my hometown, but then the league went out of business after 84. I was back doing um, – Radio and TV in 85. In 86, I came back to Montreal as a director of football operations, and halfway through the season, I got the call from Bill Polian and Ralph Wilson in Buffalo, uh, inviting me down, and uh, the rest is uh, history. When you were at Kansas City, you had a player who I remember, I was like 11, 12 years old at the time, he did something that was truly incredible when he went and saved that kid that was drowning, Joe Delaney, and he lost his life as part of it. Joe Delaney, a young lad from northeast Louisiana, a running back. Uh, I think he was a second-round draft choice of ours. He, he wasn't very big as running backs go. He, I think he only weighed about 180 pounds. Uh, uh, that's comparable to about 190 today, 195. But uh, Joe was unbelievable. He was a tremendously talented player. Yeah, but after his second year, he was home. Wonderful family guy. Some little children fell in a in a sinkhole or a pond or whatever it was. Joe, who can't swim, went in to try and save them. Saved one, but he and the other young person uh, never did make it. What a tragedy! Indeed. So you get to Buffalo. You survive the winter. You say, "I'm from Chicago." This is mild, right? <laughs> well, yeah, this may come as a surprise. The average temperature in Chicago during the winter is about a degree or two colder than Buffalo. However, the snowfall in Buffalo is three times the amount you get in Chicago. And that's because they're on the on the east side of the lake where the weather pattern comes across the lake, picks it up, and dumps it all on the city. 
you got to get Tommy McDonald out there. He likes shoveling snow. We talked to him a couple of years ago, and the guy's out shoveling snow in Pennsylvania. <laughs> well, no, that was part of it. Our fans uh, reveled in it. Our fans reveled in it, and late in the season was always a big help to us. And uh, uh, we, we used to have a mantra, one I learned from my father, the old Marine, when it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. And uh, that was uh, the way we used to treat the weather. You had such a, a successful run with the Bills. What what was the key to it? Uh, obviously, Bill Polian bringing in good talent helps, but there's a lot of teams that have good talent that don't amount to much. Yeah. You were able to, to mold something. How did that occur? Well, uh, Bill once said, Polian, and so right, it's amazing what you can accomplish if no one cares who gets the credit. This was one of the most team-oriented organizations you could ever imagine. Uh, everybody was important. Example, the four Super Bowl games we went to, Mr. Wilson took every single player person in the organization, uh, the, the ladies that cleaned up at night, the switchboard operators, security personnel, took them to those games, flew them down, hotel, meals, tickets, um, and they were part of it. And, uh, and he wanted it known, Bill Polian wanted it known, I wanted it known, and all our players did, that everybody in that organization was, was fine. And that's what led to the resilience, I think, that it took for our guys to come back from this crushing disappointment of losing those games and still fighting our way back to go after what proved to be the impossible dream. When Scott Nord missed that field goal, everybody acts like it was a chip shot. It was, what, 47 yards? It wasn't an easy field goal. Yeah, 47 yards off of grass. Uh, fewer than 50% of those are made. But nevertheless, uh, uh, you know, it, it went wide and uh, by a foot or two. And, um, uh, you know, I, I feel so much for Scott, a quiet, uh, unassuming young man, another high-character guy, good family guy. But our players rally around him so, and so did. We flew back into Buffalo, and they took us downtown to Lafayette Square, uh, and we came out on the balcony of the City Hall. There were 30,000 people below chanting Scott's name, and he was moved to tears and said, you're the reason we'll be back next year. He was right. To make it to four consecutive Super Bowls is a thing that I I don't think we'll ever see again. Do you? Well, I think it's uh, unlikely, but certainly not impossible. And um, who knows? It, it's uh, I have to admit, it's quite an accomplishment. And you know, it's, I think it's even harder. I wish it wouldn't have been uh, to, to go back to four in a row after you've lost the previous one. Because uh, instead of uh, many people would say, "Oh, what's the use after the second time or so?" and give up throwing the towel. I remember on a call-in show after our second Super Bowl loss, where one of our fans did call in and said, "Coach, please don't go back next year. I can't take it. I can't stand the agony. I can't go to work on Monday afterwards." And I said, "Sir, I understand your anguish. I share it, but I'm glad you're not on my team." How did you motivate the players season after season after that? I have to assume it's a massive disappointment. Um, I've often been asked, how do you motivate those guys? The answer to that is simple. Simple. Select only intrinsically motivated players. Select guys that are hungering for instruction, that want to get better. 
select guys that if you do say something that's meaningful, they respond to it. Um, so it was it was the way we selected them and the and and the work ethic. Uh, uh, you know, I, I used to say, you know, don't tell me you have the the will to win. Do you have the will to prepare? Because if you lack the will to prepare, you don't have the will to win. And our guys had it. Uh, there's great internal leadership on that team. The Jim Kellys, Daryl Talley's, uh, Kent Hall's, I could go on and on. Steve Tasker, uh, I could go on and on. But, but, uh, and I, I always hesitate to name three or four or five guys in the team because I leave out so many more who's, who deserve to be acknowledged that way. You had the no huddle offense. Whose idea was that? Well, on the 1989 season, we were in the playoffs. We were playing the Cleveland Browns before they moved to Baltimore. Um, and uh, going into the fourth quarter, we were losing by 18 points. Those days there was no two-point conversion. Um, there was only the single point. Well, 18 points down going into the fourth quarter, we're not going to uh, – Battle. We said, let's go to our two-minute drill right now. We did. And um, and marched down the field, scored a touchdown. Now we're down by 11. Uh, somehow got the ball back, marched down again. About three minutes to play. We're now down by four. We stopped them, got the ball again with about a minute and a half to go. And it's all of this in a two-minute drill. The whole fourth quarter was two-minute drill, fast tempo, fast pace. Marched down the field, got down deep in their territory, and one of our great running backs, a great receiver, Ronnie Harmon, uh, tried to look down at his feet to keep him in bounds in the end zone and dropped what would have been the winning touchdown pass. Well, we lost the game. But as we're walking off the field after the game, Ted Marchabrota, our offensive quarterback, offensive uh, coordinator, I should say, uh, former fine quarterback, <laughs> and uh, Tom Bresnahan, our offensive line coach, said, Marv, how about making that our offense next year? I said, how come you guys are thinking the same thing I am? <laughs> so that was our style of offense, uh, the, the, the no-huddle, go-quick offense. It would work in today's game, I think, even better because you don't have time to substitute defensive players like they do. Well, no, that was the whole idea, uh, that the opponent won't have uh, time to substitute. They won't have time to signal their, their calls in and wear them out. Those are advantages. The disadvantages are that you – I don't think this is a disadvantage, but one of the things you have to be willing to do, you have to pare your, your um, playbook down to less than half of what it would have been. Uh, so, so the players can master it and get it quick. Uh, you, you have to simplify. And also, you're off the field very quickly. Our defensive coaches weren't in love with the two-minute drill. Uh, you know, it was, it was in, in almost every close game, um, it, it was a 20-minute possession for us, 40-minute possession for the opponents. But time of possession is is not the key to winning. No, of course not. Now, if we got a good, comfortable lead, we would come out of the uh, the uh, quick pace no huddle. Say we had a 17-point lead early in the fourth, we'd slow it down and, and run the clock and so on. And we might have uh, a greater time possession in games where we where we won by uh, by a comfortable margin. And it helps to have a Hall of Fame quarterback, running back, and one Hall of Fame receiver and another guy who should be in an Andre Reid. 
Boy, did it ever. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> what great players we had. And that, again, was the work of uh, Bill Polian, of our director of player personnel, John Butler, uh, who later did become general manager when Bill moved on, um, and uh, of, of so many of our scouting staff. We had great personnel. Uh, we stuck with guys for a while and developed them. Um, we, we had some low-round draft choices, guys like Andre, a fourth-rounder, who was so great. Steve Tester, who was put on waivers by the then-Houston Oilers, um, the greatest special team player ever. And you named them guys like Jim Kelly, Thurman Thomas, Bruce Smith, linebackers like Cornelius Bennett and Shane Conlon, Daryl Talley. Uh, what, what a group of guys. Uh, I remember them so. And uh, uh, they were guys I used to kid them a little bit. I said, you guys have character, and i got to tell you, there are a bunch of characters on this team. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it isn't, like, again, it's not just the coach. It's not just the players. It's the owner and everybody else. And chokingly, after the, the greatest comeback game in the history of the NFL when we defeated the Houston Oilers in the playoffs after being down 35-3 to in the second half. In the locker room after the game, when all of us celebrating finally calmed down, I said to our players, hey, guys, I want you to know something that um, I just coached the greatest comeback in the history of the NFL. And I want you to know I couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> and we had some great players. Was that the most fun game that you coached? Well, they, they, it's one of the most memorable, certainly. Uh, it has to be one of the most memorable because of that. We actually were in the game without three of our great star players. Jim Kelly was injured. Cornelius Bennett was out injured, a great linebacker who doesn't get the credit I think he deserves even now. Um, and um, uh, Thurman Thomas was out injured. And so we came back from that tremendous deficit with an unbelievable experience. It's because of your backup quarterback. I mean, Captain Comeback, Frank Reich. He did it in college, and he did it with you guys. Isn't that amazing? Frank Reich led the greatest comeback in collegiate football history, and he led the greatest one in college, in, in pro football history. That's amazing. Yeah. There's another high-character, high-talented guy. Never a problem between him and Jim. They were very close, in fact. Yeah. To ultimately retire... And then you unretire. What, what was the thought process going on then? Well, I had received a call from Ralph Wilson. He said, Mar, we, about coming back to Buffalo, uh, he felt that there was a, a diminishing morale in the organization and so on. And we agreed that I'd go back for a two-year period, which I did. And uh, I enjoyed it. Um, I guess we didn't uh, regenerate him to the degree that I would have hoped. But we brought in some good football players. Uh, uh, Fred Jackson out of Cole College, <laughs> who's performed very well for him. I like Ryan Fitzpatrick as a little surprise that they let him go. He didn't have a great year last year. But you, gotta, you better get the cast around him better before any quarterback's going to be good. You mentioned that uh, you talked to uh, Mark Tress and the Bears coach, and I see that you kind of, mentored him when he was in Montreal. What do you expect from him with the Bears? No, Mark, there's been a remarkable parallel in our careers. He was an assistant in the NFL. He went to Canada, not just to Canada, but to Montreal. He went for five years, as I did. He went to three Grey Cup games like we did. He won two of them like we did. (laughs) And now he's back here. No, he's a good teacher. 
He, he, uh, his reputation among coaches is superb. Uh, he's going into a tough situation. He's taken over a team that was 10-6 and six a year ago, although their offense uh, did struggle. Um, the Bears, and uh, I, I, I have uh, high expectancies of Mark. I think he'll do a great job. Players connect with him. Uh, he, he, he comes across well. You keep hearing the term players coach. That's a, I hate that term. But a good players coach is one who teaches well. He teaches well, teaches so well that the players say, this is good. I like this. They buy in. They go to work on it. I think Mark has that quality. When you were inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame and you're standing out there looking at the uh, the audience, what, what is that like? I'll tell you, you, first of all, you wonder, am I really here? Uh, I, I never dreamed uh, that, that this would occur when I first started the game. I wasn't a, a pro, fame, pro football Hall of Fame playing talent, but even beyond that, when I started coaching, that never even occurred to me uh, that someday where the, the Vince Lombardis and, uh, oh my goodness, uh, where those guys were that I might be up there. And, uh, you know, I, I think about it. Uh, okay, so I, my initial expectancies couldn't have been very high by someone who was predicting. But I looked out at the audience at some of the great ones that were out there, the Chuck Bednarics from way back, from many years, Bart Starr. Uh, I, I see them out there, and still on their faces I could see that glow of, wow, am I here. And that's the feeling you have. The whole football hall of, Pro Football Hall of Fame is a very uplifting place to be. It's magnificently run by the previous executive directors and the current one, Steve Perry. And it's just a delight to always go back and share memories and maybe a few exaggerations, too, with some of the guys there. <laughs> what I hope is that these younger players, when they get in, keep the tradition going, like the older players coming back every year. Because Ellie and I were there this year, and it seems like some of the younger players are kind of brushing off, not showing up. Well, uh, maybe they're busy. Maybe they're doing things. You mean to return to the hall? And uh, uh, they had a, a good turnout this year. Yeah, I hope. No, I think most of the guys I've talked to, even recently when they've gone in, have been uh, very, very uh, uh, surprised. Now you speak of younger players. Since I've um, left uh, coaching, um, four of our players have been inducted: Jim Kelly, uh, Thurman Thomas. Bruce Smith, James Lofton. And you said it early in the program, Andre Reed should be there, and I certainly hope it happens. But of those four, Kelly, Bruce Smith, and Lofton were back for Hall of Fame weekend. Thurman was going to come, but his son was in a uh, big, uh, some type of athletic contest that weekend. Thurman the third is his son, by the way, <laughs> and uh, Thurman's father also is named that. So Thurman didn't come for that reason only, but there, there, there's four young guys whose hearts are still there, very much so. And Joe DeLamalier comes every year, too. Yeah, Joe DeLamalier, what a guy, another Buffalo Bill from pre-days from, from before I was there, but I've gotten to know Joe well. And uh, Joe, Joe is, uh, well, again, he's another one of those guys, high character and what a character. He's got his golf outing coming up this Monday in um, Mundelein. Well, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, he's having a lot of the Hall of Famers come. It's going to be at Ivanhoe and Mundelein. He's raising money for that um, John Chinsky's orphanage in Mexico. Oh, good for him. Yes, he's into so many charities. And uh, Joe's, Joe's, I have a great regard for Joe DeLamalier. Absolutely. 
Speaking of Hall of Fame, should we anticipate you joining a literary Hall of Fame now that you are a published author? Your, your Between the Lies came out in 2011. Are you? We're going to have a, a few more books coming from your pen or your computer well, or wherever or, they come from. Yeah, yeah. Well, believe it or not, I've, I've written three books right now. One is Game Changers. I did it in coordination with a guy named Jeff Miller from Buffalo about the hundred greatest plays in Buffalo Bills history and about. 35, 40 of them came during my tenure. Uh, the other was, where else would you rather be? Something I said to our players before the kickoff of every game ever played, which was somewhat of a memoir, but I hope there was even more insights into the game and, and relationships with uh, the fans and the owners and others. And then I wrote a novel, Between the Lies, uh, which uh, came out about a year or so ago. Uh, it's now being... Um, uh, proffered to some movie and television uh, studios out west by an agent who called me and wanted to take over. I don't know what will happen on it. And now I'm about 125 pages into a book of poetry. I've always been enamored by poetry, and I'm about 125 pages into a projected 200 page. So writing is what takes my time right now in terms of enjoyment and, and involvement. Does your poetry rhyme? Only rhyme. In fact, one of the uh, early poems in is, don't call it a poem if it doesn't rhyme. I don't like poetry that doesn't rhyme. I don't know how they call it that. That's what I said, the same thing, and people go, you don't understand it. I'm like, no, if it doesn't rhyme, it's not a poem. It's just like a story. That Exactly. And one that bounces around here and there. No, I'm not for... Well, that's, that, the poem is one that... Well, if you, you when we get I'm done a, here, if you get, when you get done here, if you give me uh, an email address, I'll uh, send you a copy of that poem. <laughs> so you're not big on iambic pentameter and all that stuff. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, my mother was was a, an unbelievable uh, interest in all types of literature, especially poetry, and she got me hooked on it too. So, but. Um, uh, it rhymes in, in, in various forms, too. Some of it is every line rhymes. Some of it is alternate line rhymes. Some of it is the first half of the line and the, and the, and the last word in the line rhymes, stuff like that. Is it sports poems or just poems in general? No, it, it goes way beyond sports. There's, I, I'd say the, uh, maybe uh, 15 to 20% of them are sports-oriented. The rest is uh, life-oriented. You mentioned that you tied the record for the oldest coach in NFL history. Are you going to go to break the record in the next couple of years? Am I going to do what? Am I going to try to break the record? Try to break the record of George Halas? (laughs) Isn't it time for a comeback? Well, I would always have done that. In fact, um, there were two occasions where I was uh, contacted by owners of a team that were getting ready to hire a new head coach, and they wanted to bring me in just to get my feelings on it, to, to confer, to consult on it. And during the process, I said to them, I would be interested. Because about two years after I retired, I did miss it enough, uh, and it felt refreshed. But uh, both of those men, and others too, said, well, uh, I'm 15 years younger than you, and I don't think I could do it, Marv. In other words, uh, the age factor mitigated against me. I, I, I don't like it that it did, but it did. I, 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 I wasn't going to come back and try and play. I was going to try and coach. 
If you were to coach, I mean, I could see you coaching a team like the Raiders if Al Davis was still around because Al was a renegade and he didn't care as long as you could win. No, Al was Al was a character, uh, right? And uh, and uh, <laughs> well, maybe that would be, but uh, unfortunately, Al is not here anymore. Yeah. Who was the best football player you ever saw? Oh my! <laughs> and you've seen a few of them. You know, that's like. Uh, Who's your favorite kid, right? <laughs> well, who's your favorite? Who do you love more, your mother, your father? Or I'll tell you this one. If you answer this one, I'll I'll uh, I'll answer you. If I clap my hands, you tell me which hand made the noise. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there, there were too many great ones, you know, and uh, for me, it, it would be unfair and not even accurate for me to name just one of the many. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've coached well over a thousand young men. I thought you were going to say Jim Thorpe. <laughs> well, you, yeah, guys well played, you, you and Jim Thorpe played together, right? No, I'm not that old. <laughs> I'm not that old. All right, that wraps up another Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. I'd like to thank our guests, Marv Levy, Bob Greasy. also like to thank our executive producer, Dave Olson. Hope you folks out there enjoyed it as much as David and I did doing it. And tune in again next time to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. 